0: This is the one year Bible reading for August the 18th, and I am excited to jump in with you this morning to the book of Esther in the Old Testament. It is one of my very favorite recountings of God's provision for his people, uh, this time through the faithfulness of one young woman. And so, yes, in this book, God preserves his chosen people from foreign annihilation, and uh, it also recounts for the Jewish people the source of the start of the festival of Purim, uh, which you'll hear more about towards the end of this book. Um, it happened between 483 and 473 BC, and that was during the reign of King Ahasuerus, or in our version we refer to him as King Xerxes, which is the Greek. Um, and it happened between the first and second uh, groups that returned from exile from Babylon. So uh, I have a little note in my Bible, the one I primarily use, that between chapters 6 and 7 in the book of Ezra, that's where you would actually put uh, the book of Esther chronologically. So the first group of exiles have returned to Jerusalem and are setting up worship at the temple once again, Um, but Esther and her family have remained in what was Babylon, um, and that's where we pick up our story today. This happened in the days of King Xerxes, who reigned over 127 provinces stretching from India to Ethiopia. At that time, he ruled his empire from his throne at the fortress of Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and officials. He invited all the military officers of Media and Persia, as well as the noblemen and provincial officials. The celebration lasted six months, a tremendous display of opulent wealth and the glory of his empire. When it was all over, the king gave a special banquet for all the palace servants and officials from the greatest to the least. It lasted for seven days and was held at Susa in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was decorated with beautifully woven white and blue linen hangings, fastened by purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine, just as the king had commanded. The only restriction on the drinking was that no one should be compelled to take more than he wanted but those who wished could have as much as they pleased for the king had instructed his staff to let everyone decide this matter for themselves. Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women of the palace at the same time. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was half drunk with wine, he told Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass the seven eunuchs who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted all the men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's order to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. He immediately consulted with his advisors, who knew all the Persian laws and customs, for he always asked their advice. The names of these men were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Marsina, and Me- uh, Mamukin, seven high officials of Persia and Media. They were his closest associates and held the highest positions in the empire. What must be done to Queen Vashti, the king demanded? What penalty does the law provide for a queen who refuses to obey the king's orders properly sent through his eunuchs? Mamukhin answered the king and his princes, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also every official and citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn that Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the, the king. Before the day is out, the wife of every one of us, your officials throughout the empire, will hear what the queen did and will start talking to their husbands in the same way. There will be no end to the contempt and anger throughout your realm. So, if it please the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should order that Queen Vashti be forever banished from your presence and that you choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout your vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king and his princes thought this made good sense, so he followed counsel. He sent letters to all the parts of the empire, to each province, in its own script and language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler of his home. But after Xerxes' anger had cooled, he began thinking about Vashti and what she had done and the decree he had made. So his attendants suggested, let us search the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king let the king appoint agents in each province to bring these beautiful young women to the royal harem at Susa. Haggai, the eunuch in charge, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman who pleases you most will be made queen instead. This advice was very appealing to the king, so he put the plan into effect immediately. Now, at the fortress of Susa, there was a certain Jew named Mordecai, son of Jair. He was from the tribe of Benjamin and was a descendant of Kish and Shimei. His family had been exiled from Jerusalem to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar, along with King Jehoiachin of Judah and many others. This man had a beautiful and lovely young cousin, Hadassah, who was also called Esther. When her father and mother had Mordecai adopted her into his own family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Haggai was very impressed with Esther and treated her kindly. He quickly ordered a special menu for her and provided her with beauty treatments. He also assigned her seven maids, specifically chosen from the king's palace, and he moved her and her maids into the best place in the harem. Esther had not told anyone of her nationality and family background, for Mordecai had told her not to. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to ask about Esther and find out what was happening to her. Before each young woman was taken to the king's bed, she was given the prescribed 12 months of beauty treatments, six months with oil of myrrh, followed by six months with special perfumes and ointments. When the time came for her to go into the king, she was given her choice of whatever clothing or jewelry she wanted to enhance her beauty. That evening, she was taken to the king's private rooms, and the next morning she was brought to the second harem where the king's wives lived. There she would be under the care of Sha'ascaz, another of the king's eunuchs. She would live there for the rest of her life, never going to the king again, unless he had especially enjoyed her, her by name. When it was Esther's turn to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. When Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in early winter of the seventh year of his reign, the king loved her more than any of the other women. He was so delighted with her that he set the royal crown on her head and declared her queen instead of Vashti. To celebrate the occasion, he gave a banquet in Esther's honor for all his princes and servants, giving generous gifts to everyone and declaring a public festival for the provinces. Even after all the young women had been transferred to the second harem and Mordecai had become a palace official, Esther continued to keep her nationality and family background a secret. She was still following Mordecai's orders, just as she did when she was living in his home. One day, as Mordecai was on duty at the palace, two of the king's eunuchs, Bigthana and Teresh, who were guards at the door of the king's private quarters, became angry at King Xerxes and plotted to assassinate him. But Mordecai heard about the plot and passed the information on to Queen Esther. She then told the king about it and gave Mordecai credit for the report. When an investigation was made and Mordecai's story was found to be true, the two men were hanged on a gallows. This was all duly recorded in the book of the history of King Xerxes' reign. Sometime later, King Xerxes promoted Haman, son of Hamathdatha the Agagite, to prime minister, making him the most powerful official in the empire next to the king himself. All the king's officials would bow down before Haman to show him respect whenever he passed by, for so the king had commanded But Mordecai refused to bow down or show him respect. Then the palace officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why are you disobeying the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, but he still refused to comply with the order. So they spoke to Haman about this to see if if he would tolerate Mordecai's conduct, since Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not bow down or show him respect, he was filled with rage. So he decided it was not enough to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Since he had learned that Mordecai was a Jew, he decided to destroy all the Jews throughout the entire empire of Xerxes. So in the month of April, during the 12th year of King Xerxes' reign, lots were cast. The lots were called Purim, hence the festival of Purim to determine the best day and month to take action. And the day was selected was March 7th, nearly a year later. Then Haman approached King Xerxes and said, There is a certain race of people scattered through all the provinces of your empire. Their laws are different from those of any other nation, and they refuse to obey even the laws of the king. So it is not in the king's interest to let them live. If it please, your majesty, issue a decree that they be destroyed, and I will give 375 tons of silver to the government administrators so that they can put it into the royal treasury. The king agreed, confirming his decision by removing his signet ring from his finger and giving it to Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king told Haman, but go ahead and do as you like with these people. On April 17th, Haman called in the king's secretaries and dictated letters to the princes, the governors of the respective provinces, and the local officials of each province in their own scripts and languages. These letters were signed in the name of King Xerxes, sealed with his ring, and sent by messengers into all the provinces of the empire. The letters decreed that all Jews, young and old, including women and children, must be killed, slaughtered, and annihilated on a single day. This was scheduled to happen nearly a year later on March 7th. The property of the Jews to those who killed them. A A copy of this decree was to be issued in every province and made known to all the people so that they would be ready to do their duty on the appointed day. At the king's command, the decree went out by the swiftest messengers, and it was proclaimed in the fortress of Susa. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Susa fell into confusion. We will pick up the story there tomorrow. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. But now when I, Paul, mention this next issue, I cannot praise you, Corinthians, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. First of all, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church, and to some extent, I believe it. But, of course, there must be divisions among you so that those of you who are right will be recognized. It is not the Lord's Supper you are concerned about when you come together, for I am told that some of you hurry to eat your own without sharing with others. As a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. What? Is this really true? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace the church of God and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say about these things? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly do not. For this is what the Lord himself said, and I will pass it on to you just as I received it. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and you, sealed by the shedding of my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. So if anyone eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily, that person is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread and drink the cup unworthily, not honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. And that is why many of you are weak and sick, and some have evil. Even... But if we examine ourselves, we will not be examined by God and judged in this way. But when we are judged and disciplined by the Lord, we will not be condemned with the world. So, dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, Wait for each other. If you are really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about other matters after I arrive. Psalm 35, starting in verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on and do nothing? Rescue me from their fierce attacks, protect my life from these lions. Then I will thank you in front of the entire congregation. I will praise you before all the people. Don't let my treacherous enemies rejoice over my defeat. Don't let those who hate me without cause gloat over my sorrow. They don't talk of peace. They plot against innocent people who are minding their own business. They shout that they have seen me doing wrong. Aha, they say. Aha. We do we with our own eyes we saw him do it. O oh Lord, you know all about this. Do not stay silent. Don't abandon me now, O oh Lord. Wake up. Rise to my defense. Take up my cause, my God and my Lord. Declare me not guilty, O Lord, my God, for you give justice. Don't let my enemies laugh about me and my troubles. Don't let them say, look, we have what we wanted. Now we will eat him alive. May those who my troubles be humili- humiliated and disgraced. May those who triumph over me be covered with shame and dishonor. But give great joy to those who have stood with me in my defense. Let them continually say, Great is the Lord, who enjoys helping his servant. Then I will tell everyone of your justice and goodness, and I will praise you all day long. Proverbs 21, 19 and 20. It is better to live alone in the desert than with a crabby, complaining wife. The wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. And to end today, we're going to start the next section of The Life You've Always Wanted. And I only read this far in the book when I uh, read it initially. I am classic for starting books and loving them and not finishing them. If I'm in good company, give me a shout out there. Um, So this chapter is chapter 10, A Life of Freedom, which he subtitles The Practice of Secrecy. And I'm disappointed I didn't read it, but I guess it's in the Lord's perfect timing because just within the last couple of months, I have realized my own uh, downfall in this area of fear of man and um, fearing people's disapproval and desiring their praise and how much bondage that can create in your life. Um, So that's really what this chapter is about. Um, So it is in good timing in my life, and maybe it will resonate with you, too. He starts with a quote from a mayor in Chicago who said, they have vilified me, they have crucified me, and yes, they have even criticized me. Why is it? So he says, um, as if to say vilification and crucifixion I can put up with, but criticism, that's hitting below the belt. Why is it we so often respond so strongly to criticism? I believe it reveals a serious addiction in many of us. Henry Nguyen puts this problem in perspective. He says, At issue here is the question, to whom do I belong, to God or to the world? Many of my daily preoccupations suggest that I belong more to the world than to God. A little criticism makes me angry, and a little rejection makes me depressed. A little praise raises my spirits, and a little success excites me. Often, I am like a small boat on the ocean, completely at the mercy of its waves. The alternative to this addiction, the life you've always wanted, is a life of freedom. Lewis Smeads writes, One of the fine arts of gracious living is the art of living freely with our critics. When we have the grace to be free in the presence of those who judge our lives and evaluate our actions, We have Christian freedom. This is the kind of freedom the Apostle Paul described to some of his critics. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul considered it a, quote, very small thing in asking the Corinthians to back off. He did not say it is nothing. It still mattered to Paul what they thought of him, but it didn't matter too much. Criticism could no longer rock his boat. His balance and his sense of well-being rested on acceptance from a higher court. It is the Lord who judges me. When Jesus spoke, he was free from the need to create an impression. He was free to speak the truth in love. He was free with the freedom of the beloved, of God. But the voice within us is not free. It is driven by ego and pride. It is ugly to us, and we would turn it off if we could, but turning it off proves not to be so simple. Where does this voice come from? Soci- sociologist George Herbert wrote about what he called the, quote, generalized other, the mental representation we carry inside ourselves of that group of people in whose judgment we measure our success or failure. Our sense of esteem and worth is largely wrapped up in their appraisal of our worth. Our generalized other is a, comp- uh, is a composite of all the Siskels and Eberts in our lives, whose thumbs up or thumbs down carries a, uh, an emotional weight with us. When I catch myself comparing with others or thinking, I could be happy if only I had what they have, then I know I need to withdraw for a while and listen to another voice. Away from the winds, the earthquakes, and the fires of human recognition, I can hear, again, the still small voice posing the question that it always asks of self-absorbed children. What are you doing here? Too often, I reply to the voice by whining about some of my own Ahabs and Jezebels, and the voice gently reminds me, as it has reminded thousands of Elijahs before me, that I am only a small part of a much larger movement And at the end of the day, there is only one king whose approval will matter. It is the Lord who judges me. The voice also whispers, do not despise your place, your gifts, your voice, for you cannot have another's, and it would not fulfill you if you could. So I hope today that you were able to turn off that generalized other and just seek to please the Lord. Love you all. Have a beautiful day.